Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Andy Luptak, the retired Title IX coordinator and vice president of student life at Concordia University, Wisconsin. Andy put in more than 50 years in student affairs, and he directed several Title IX overhauls. Andy, you've seen it all, and it makes you especially qualified to speak on this topic today. Welcome, Andy. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's great to be with you. You know, did I ever tell you about the real reason we moved our campus from on the near west side of Milwaukee to uh, Mequon? No, you didn't. Yeah, we remember we bought the sure. campus of the School Sisters in Notre Dame, and I was football coach at the time. So I told our president, I always want to be the football coach at Notre Dame. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that, that's my little, you know. <laughs> For the listeners at home, I should mention that I used to work with Andy. Andy was my boss for several years, and I know we're not supposed to have favorite bosses, but of course he was one of my favorites. And I, I got to hear all the history of Concordia and higher ed from him. And so, uh, Andy, today we're talking about Title IX overhauls and really what it takes. And we know in June of 2022, on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the Department of Education released a proposed report that would rewrite the regulations established by the Trump administration from two years earlier. Those proposed regulations would significantly expand the scope of Title IX while also streamlining some of the procedural requirements. If these regulations are passed, colleges will need to do another overhaul, which includes processes, systems, training of staff. So what do those proposed changes mean for colleges and what's it going to cost them? So, Andy, you worked as a leader in student affairs all the way from the 60s to 2020. For our listeners, just give us some general historical context for Title IX. Just outline some of the biggest changes that you saw. Sure. Well, as you know, Sarah, uh, Congress enacted Title IX in 1972. And I, I would like to read just one part of the statute so that you'll notice a couple of, of key words in this that we'll talk about later. But uh, here's my quote. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be sub subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The key words in this quote that we'll, we'll talk about is in the United States on the basis of sex and educational programs or, or activities. So in 1972, this was passed uh, by Congress. It affected the whole realm of education, elementary schools, high schools, colleges, and universities. The OCR, Office for Civil Rights of the DOE, Department of Education, then supervises the compliance, and they normally do this through two methods, either guidance, which are kind of suggestions, doesn't carry the weight of law, but also they, they do it through regulations, which does carry the weight of law. So the original emphasis uh, starting in 1972 was a focus on athletics, on equity for girls and women in athletics. And that progressed up until 2011. And then the Obama administration saw that 
colleges and universities particularly were not paying attention to sexual harassment and sexual violence. So they published the famous or infamous, depending upon, you know, how you felt at the time, a DCL, Dear Colleague Letter. And that outlined a number of things that they thought that institutions should be doing. They kind of redefined the Title IX coordinator. They talked about an effective grievance process that you should be. And their favorite one was called the single investigator model, or I've also heard it called uh, a civil rights model. They made the point about impartial investigations and that you have to annually train your staffs and that you, you have to respond again to sexual harassment occurring both on campus as well as off campus. And they took a more global thing. So they said it also applies to things like international education, so trips in into foreign countries. And then they talked about supportive services, remedies that you should be doing for uh, particularly a victim of sexual harassment, sexual violence, things like uh, offer counseling, a no contact order between the parties, etc. So that's what the Obama administration did. Then during that time, there were a number of court cases that also began to shape what we should or should not do uh, with Title IX. And then, and then we're in now the, the Trump administration. And in 2017, what they did is the Trump administration announced that they were taking off the table two of the things that the Obama administration did, and that was a question and answer, dear colleague, letter that was published in 2014, and then that original DCL that I talked about in 2011. So they took those off the table, and then they began to work at their regulations, and regulations had not been done for some time. So this is the first regulation that, that, that had been done prior to even the, the Obama administration. And so the final regulations uh, were posted uh, in May of 2020, and we were given until the middle of August 2020 to comply. So there was just a few months to kind of look at, look at everything that, that they were proposing, which were major changes, and um, you know, kind of get your act together as a college or university. And so some of the things that, that they were talking about, and I'm going to go back to, to that original quote, was no person in the United States. So they took a very literal meaning of that and confined a Title IX to just the geographic boundaries of the United States. So that, that meant things like international education. They were saying, you're not under the umbrella of Title IX for those programs. Now, they didn't forbid colleges and universities for attending to conduct, you know, in a foreign country, but they were saying it's not under Title IX. Well, and I would imagine that's really complicated with the boom of online education. How do you even navigate cases that are online students who are outside the United States? And so I would imagine a lot yeah. of universities were trying to figure out that kind of messiness and yeah. gray area. Exactly. And then they redefined the role of Title IX coordinators and investigators. And one of the things they did is they kind of threw out the, the single investigator model. Again, because, of course, particularly the, the Sixth Circuit said that you need to have witnesses cross-examined. And so they said you have to do a live hearing where witnesses will be cross-examined, which included the victim of the alleged behavior. Which is really almost legalistic in its terminology and its language. And I would imagine for many schools trying to navigate that, it kind of runs counter to the model of 
education, right? When you've got all these legalistic terms being thrown at you of this is how you have to adjudicate a case. Exactly. And in, in addition to that, they almost turned the circumstances into a court of law, you know, like, like you would see well, when you're in a court of law with cross-examination of witnesses and, and things of that sort. And as such, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but, but this, this was a cost in staff because no longer could a Title IX coordinator and investigators make the decision of responsibility. You know, was the, the alleged uh, person uh, responsible for violating school policy, and they could not make that. So they, 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 they had you had to add staff at that time to take care of that. And I'll just kind of interject here. I was uh, pretty involved with this in 2012 when I worked in student life with you. The Dear Colleague letter was coming out. We were just now sort of trying to get our arms around what this meant for what the process would look like within our university. How do we train our staff? What is this? What is this? And I just remember how much kind of vagueness and ambiguity there was in trying to navigate that. And I know a lot of people look to you as having, you know, seen other Title IX overhauls as someone that could kind of help. I know within our WACU Association, which is two dozen uh, private schools in Wisconsin that come together, and we all looked at Andy and we said, Andy, what are you doing, (laughs) right? Help us figure it out because there was no playbook. It's not like the government sent us a how-to or an execution manual. They simply said, here are the regulations now I'll go figure it out. Yes. And that's costly. We spent so much time in 2012 kind of devising a whole new way of thinking about Title IX on our campus. Yeah, not only that, but the amount of time and cost you spent going external to the campus, because I certainly was not the know-it-all on, on this topic, along with everybody else who who was taking a look at the new regulations and saying, well, what about this or what about that? The other thing the Trump administration did was standardize the evidentiary standard. The Obama administration said you must use preponderance of the evidence as an evidentiary standard for students. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll give an example. At the time, the University of Wisconsin system did that, but for employees... They had a different evidentiary standard, which which was clear and convincing evidence. And so the Trump administration was saying, hey, the folks has got to be good as the people. I mean, you have the same evidentiary standard. Pick one of the two, but you've got to do that. So that came into effect. And then both parties had to have access to it, the elements of the investigation. So, for example, Sarah, if, if I would uh, interview a complainant, okay, that interview had to be available to the responding party and vice versa. If I interviewed a responding party, that had to be available to the complainant. So you had to develop that system by which you made those interview notes available. And uh, the Trump administration said no presumption of responsibility. You, you really have to look to the facts of the case. And then uh, all your training materials had to be put on your website. So, and, and the real thought was that they were looking for any bias in, in the training materials. They also developed an informal uh, resolution process. They redefined who, uh, who are mandatory reporters on campus. And then the one thing, is, particularly for faith-based institution, is they did put in uh, a statute about a religious exemption you know, with, within, the, within the regulations. 
So that all makes sense. So that's kind of where we've been and what we're, most universities are currently operating under that. Tell us a little bit about Biden's proposed regulations, because he's come down and he said, hey, we're going to do things differently. Yes. I'll go through kind of the major the major ones, uh, but we're just going to have to see when the final regulations come out in, in, in terms of what they finally, uh, finally will happen. Because I know the proposed regulations under the Trump administration weren't exactly the ones that they published. There, there, there were some changes made, and I would assume that the same thing with with the Biden proposed regulations. So, number number one, they they strengthen protections for the uh, LGBTQI populations, and particularly students who faced uh, discrimination on the basis of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. So that was built in. They also said that there's going to be separate rules and regulations uh, versus students' eligibility, male students' eligibility to participate in female athletic sports. So we, we have to see really what, what's going to happen there. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. They provide parents of particularly elementary and secondary school children additional rights and resources. I see that as a good thing. You know, we saw what, what went on earlier when parents objected in, in school board meetings. So, um, you know, I, I really think that's a positive. Protection for students who are pregnant. The Obama administration had rules and regulations on that. So did the Trump. So I see that as kind of a redefining and maybe giving pregnant students particularly uh, additional rights there. It allows schools to offer uh, an informal resolution process. Again, Trump did. So it may be a, a redefinition of that and changes there. They did say no requirement for live hearing. And I think that's one of the, the big ones is how is that going to flush out? They did put a caveat in there. They said where permitted by law. So at least in the Sixth Circuit, uh, you have still have to have live hearings in terms of, of, of my take of, of, of the law. A requirement that schools have a process for the decision makers again. So I, I don't know if, you know, they're, they're suggesting we go back to the single investigator model. And I don't know if that means that those people still are going to be the decision makers or some other process. So we've got to see how that, that's going to filter out. And they allow, again, allow schools to, to use a single investigator model. I got to think that that's 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 not going to be exactly the way that the OCR was under the Obama administration because of again court cases uh, that have happened, and a requirement to use the preponderance of evidence standard for students. Okay, again, that's that's a return to the Obama administration. Again, what are you going to use for em- employees? We we have to see. And then um, a requirement for schools to offer supportive services. Again, it's, it's, it's a re-emphasis, again, of both the Obama and Trump administration. And, and again, maybe some more definition of what these can be uh, for, for that, and are they available to both parties. So those are some fairly significant changes all wrapped up. I mean, one after another is enough, but then some of them will have very real implications for how schools navigate Title IX. So of course, there has to be preparation for this. So how do you think college leaders should prepare for the next wave of changes? I'm guessing there's legal fees, consultants, direct labor costs, maybe indirect labor costs. Tell me all about that. Okay. 
So let's first start with kind of the, the legal fees and, and or consultants. I think college and universities that, that their job is to educate students are not necessarily attorneys. Now, certainly attorneys work for, I mean, we, one, of, one of my investigators, as you know, was, was an attorney. But I do believe that you got to have those resources. And if you don't have them in-house, you're going to have to pay for them by going outside of your, your campus. So you, you have to consider that and you really have to look at the knowledge and base that you're going to have on your campus. Along with that, I'm a strong believer of building building networks. No, no matter what, what you're doing, I, that was one of my goals that I try to do as, as an administrator is is build a network on various topics, and, and certainly Title IX would, would be one. Because uh, the help of colleagues at, at other institutions is an excellent resource. And then kind of use what I, what I will call available resources. So start with, with, with attorneys. Having a knowledgeable attorney, and I will use that term in the, the example I will give you, if you've got a heart condition, you're not going to go to an orthopedist to get treated for your heart condition. You're going to go to a cardiologist. So I believe if, if you're going to go to some outside resource, legal resource, you've got to pick somebody who is knowledgeable on Title IX, has a track record of dealing with topics for colleges and universities on Title IX, uh, maybe who represented them in civil matters, uh, that, that sort of thing. So to me, that's so very important. If history is any judge, when Trump came out with his regulations, there were many, many webinars that came out and still are coming out to this day. And so I would expect the same thing would happen, you know, un- under the regulations and guidance uh, in the Obama administration, that, that you're going to get webinars that are going to come out. Some are very, very good, and some are not so good. So you have to be, you know, you have to be choosy on, on what you do. And so uh, look at that. And then, and then you're going to ultimately, with the new regulations, have to train your staff. So you have to answer the question, are you capable of doing that or you're going to have, are you going to go outside and have somebody do that, do that for you? As you know, we, we talked about this here. I got to the point where I felt my knowledge base of that was to the point that I could do training. And so uh, I was doing it. I, I did training for the University of Wisconsin system as well as, as WACU, as, as you've already mentioned. So some sort of training consultants that if you don't feel capable to do it yourself, that you can bring somebody in. So you might have uh, some idea of who to use. I know we might have listeners who are thinking, I don't even know where to start. What would be like some resources, if you can think of any, to offer up? Absolutely. The two that I heavily use throughout the years, starting with, with 2011 and to present day, are two groups. The first group is is a TIXA. TIXA's A-T-I-X-A stands for the Association of Title IX Administrators. And that's a group of attorneys uh, that obviously specialize in Title IX and do training. Uh, They hold conferences, things of that sort. Uh, Excellent attorneys, very easy to work with, found them to be be super. Okay, great. We'll uh, put that in our show notes too, a little shout out to a TIXA. And then the, the other person is an attorney for the Stetson School of Law. And he is another person that, that we have used. He takes a slightly different approach, uh, but it's very knowledgeable uh, on the law. And I, and I like that. You know, we, uh, we have uh, the approach that Atixa takes and the approach that Peter Lake takes from, from Stetson. And it just gives you a different perspective. And, and so both are super and can serve, 
can serve people well. There are lots of others out there, uh, but these are the people that we use that w- that that we found very, very, very good. How about in-house? Like, what do you think about using and training your people that are already on staff? Well, absolutely, if they are knowledgeable, and it depends upon the resources that you have. I will give you one example. I mean, I mentioned the attorney uh, that was an investigator for us that became very knowledgeable. In fact, he got his doctorate and did his dissertation on Title IX. I served on his doctoral committee. So, I mean, he he would be a person of that nature, an excellent resource and in-house person that, that you could draw on. And I would, we would sit down and we would, we would talk Title IX theory a lot during my time with him. Okay. How about other direct labor costs? So there's obviously you need your support staff, right? They've got to update policies, processes, and practices. Tell me about that. Okay. Well, and I'm sure the uh, Biden administration will go along with this, that you need annual training. So you have to annual, annually train your staff. I took the approach that I would be trained and updated, so I would go to conferences and that sort where, where I got updated, then I would come back and train my staff. I think that's a good working model. You're spending money to send one person to a conference rather than you're spending your whole staff to go to a conference. If you've got the money to do that, that's great. We did not. So, you know, I I chose to use the available resources that I had that I would go to the conferences and then bring that back and then I would train my staff. Again, if you've got knowledgeable people that that can supplement your training uh, by in-house people, uh, certainly use them. But if you can't, that's a good method. If you've got the money where you can take people to conferences, okay. Webinars are, are, are another way to do that. A lot of times webinars will say, if you buy my webinar, anybody from your staff can be on. So we, we also did that, had our staff then view a webinar if we were doing that. So let's assume that a school is up to date with the 2020 regulations. So they've, they've been really compliant with 2020s. Where do you see them falling in terms of having to spend to train and update things? Okay. If they're up to date on the, on the 2020 regulations, then they, I, I believe they're in good shape. Okay. I really think that the changes uh, that will occur won't be as major as was done under the Trump administration, okay? It'll be maybe tweaking some. You might have to develop some new policies or redefine new policies. Certainly, I think the process is going to be different. So you have to spend some time doing the process, but not as much as creating an entire new process as I did under uh, under the Trump administration. So um, I, I think it'll be less. How much less we just we just have to see. But I'll give an example. Under under the Trump administration, I kept hours of, of what I did during during the months of May to August uh, when the regulations came through, and I spent a total of 142 hours. And and this was inclusive. Okay, writing policy, writing processes, webinars talking to colleagues, things of that sort. And then, of course, after that, after we, after we implemented them, there was also a lot of work. But this, just setting it up was 142 hours. Right. Again, I don't expect that's going to be the case under these, but it's a speculation. So 142 hours, that's three and a half weeks of full-time work for a 
top paid, salaried (laughs) executive. And so that might be a bit of a measure for our listeners is how to gauge exactly what this could take. We don't know that it will. It might be less. It could be more, though. It kind of depends on where they are with their compliance of 2020, which staff resources they already have on hand versus what they're going to have to outsource. And outsourcing can add another expense. And do you think that schools should kind of plan to work on these changes during the summer months, during that natural academic cycle? Would that make sense? Well, for me, I mean, they came out in May, so it was a summer project for me. We don't know when the finalized regulations are going to come out. They may come out in, let's say, March and say you got to ha- you got to implement them by June, as an example. We don't know. So I think that's going to be defined for us when they say. I th- I so think it could be at the busiest time of the year. Right. Yes. Especially for student affairs people, August is just running around with your head cut off trying yeah. to get ready for freshman orientation and all the hullabaloo and fanfare. So, right. So it's a gift exactly. if they get yes. to work on it yeah. in summer is what you're saying. Okay, great. So there is definitely a price take to this. Do you have any suggestions for kind of saving money for training of Title IX case managers and even the wider college community? Sure. You have to start with your staff, okay? And and what expertise do you have within your staff and on your campus? So again, going back to if, if you've got knowledgeable attorneys uh, that can advise you, if you've got staff, that would be the first step. Second step would be colleagues, okay? So you let's say you need to redesign your adjudication process. Well, maybe there's a neighboring school like you that says, well, here's what we're doing, okay? That may be a good, that might be a good fit for you. So you can kind of steal. And I think we do that in student affairs a lot. So we steal from one, one another. Um, share. share. We share. Okay, th- thank you. <laughs> we share. What about campus safety officers? I know the way it worked in our university is we treated them a little bit separately in the training process. So what are your thoughts about training campus safety officers? Well, first of all, I think you need a healthy relationship with your campus safety staff because Students, staff, faculty, that may be their first entry point to say, I being harassed, I was sexually assaulted. So training them is essential, okay? And developing a relationship with your campus safety staff is also essential, that they can trust you that you're going to handle the case because they, you must handle the case. They, they can't handle the case. Yeah, there really is that kind right. of team effort it right. takes to really make sure that yeah. students' interests are protected. Right. But I would train them on a yearly basis as well as I would train our coaches. Those are the two groups on campus that I felt that that needed training, coaches and campus safety staff. So let's say a school maybe doesn't have as – you know, the the on-campus in-house expertise and you want to hire some qualified trainers. Can you tell us about how much we might expect to budget for? Okay. Well, my, my experience the last time that, that I used a, a TIXA, it was, it was about 6000 To have somebody come to your campus and train, okay, that's a lot of money for some people, okay? And I, and I certainly recognize that. You can help that by then saying, going to other schools and saying, well, we want to bring in this particular agency or to train our staff. Are you willing to come in to share the cost? And, and again, my experience is that, that schools will do that. Okay. Any suggestions for resources for schools looking to share? That, well, again, TIXA and also 
Peter Lake. Those are the ones that I have used uh, repeatedly to, to do that. And and both are excellent. And that's for a specific Title IX training. Right. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And so I think I mentioned to you, Andy, that I'm actually starting a consultancy practice. And one of the things that I offer is to look at policies and practices of schools and just look for gender inclusion and the intended outcomes that schools are looking for. And so while I don't do Title IX specific training, I do gender inclusion uh, policy and practice reviews for schools that are just looking to say, hey, is there any language that we should be mindful of or any practices related to that? So it's sort of right, related. Right. But I also think just just in what how you describe that, that's also a tag on to Title IX. I mean, if you're going to do that, you're going to be compliant with Title IX, I believe. Great. Thanks. Check out highlevelleadership.com. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> All right. So tell me about some technical issues because we talked a lot about the human capital involved. We talked a lot about processes. There's also technical issues, updated software systems to manage the cases and other things. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I, I think there's two things. I, I think there's the software to manage cases and then the technology of your, of your website. So let me start with website first. Okay. Again, every time you make changes, you're, you're going to have to communicate that not only to your campus community, but to the public generally that as a prospective student, parents that have a prospective student that, hey, what's going on in Title IX on, the, on that campus, okay? So web page is important. Depending upon your institution, when we did our Trump administration web page changes, we worked in-house. They did everything, okay? Now it took some time to do it, okay, but they did everything. Other campuses may not have the expertise where you might have to go outside to have somebody, you know, develop the stuff. I mean, they're, they're going to take your material that you should be writing and explaining to, to your campus community, and, and they'll put it in there. But, but that, that's number one. And uh, just a, a, a bit of warning is, is that uh, you may have, have some disagreements about where stuff belongs, okay? One of mine that I had that took a while to convince people was to put Title IX on our very home page in front. They did not want to, want to do that, but after I showed them a little bit about federal law that they that it should be there, then I got it on. So you may, you may have to be an advocate for yourself with your, your in-house people on that. And just one other point that you brought up was the idea that the web copy, so the actual words that appear on your website really should be written by Title IX trained employees, People. not yes. perhaps your, you know, mid-level marketing copywriter right. because they just have a different purpose in mind. And while they're very good at web copy, they might accidentally or inadvertently change something that's actually very important to being right. compliant. And and the other thing too, and again this is this is one thing that we did, was on our website on on athletics we had some, let's say, PR for athletic teams. And in the pictures that were shown, it was all males. So I had to go to our Visuals website are very and say, wait a second here. So, right. you know, I, I, again, you've got to be the eyes and ears of what's fair and equitable on your campus. And that's that's part of a Title IX coordinator's job. So tell me a little bit about cultural changes. Do people value the new mandates or in your experience have there has there been resistance to changes? Yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> With any change you're you're going to get same there are cultural issues, particularly that that we fight now as as a culture in our country. Okay. The issues are going to come uh, to the campus. So particularly 
in terms of the cultural issues, I, I want to make one, one point. And I don't know, again, this, this is going to be, we're not going to decide this. The courts are going to decide this for us. Okay. But a common tenet in looking at laws is the courts tend to go back and say, what did Congress really mean by this law? And go back to the, the, the foundation of the law. So let's, let's, let's look at that on Title IX. So in the definition, remember we talked about on the basis of sex. So what is sex? Okay. In the Trump administration, I'm going to read you a quote, and I'm going to list you the page on the regulation. So if anybody wants to check me, you certainly can. It's on page 556. And here's what they say. The most recent position of the United States in these cases is that the ordinary public meaning of sex at the time Title VII's passage was biological sex and thus the appropriate construction of the word sex does not extend to person's sexual orientation. Okay, so th- they're saying that when Title IX and Title VII were passed by, by law, the United States was saying sex is biological. Okay, we got to see how that, how that filters out. But that's, that's going to be a big cultural thing, uh, thing for us is, is what's the meaning of sex on that. And so my advice moving forward to anybody working in Title IX or even to administrators who are not is stay current on the current case law. That's important. And not that you have to, you know, if you're not a Title IX coordinator, I wouldn't expect, let's say, a president or uh, another administrator to to be searching Title IX cases. But ask your ten line coordinator to keep you abreast to those cases that that happen. I think that's that's so very very important. So we talked a bit about the kind of direct costs, what it might take to make these changes, the cultural kind of resistance or cost. Tell me about some of these other maybe indirect costs that we haven't already discussed. Okay, so first thing is, what if you're not compliant? Okay. And I'm going to uh, direct you to, to a source to kind of show you this. And that is the Chronicle for Higher Education since 2011 has kept track of the cases where the uh, Office for Civil Rights has investigated a college or university, even elementary and secondary schools. So the number of cases that have been investigated by the OCR. Uh, and so if, if you want to take a look at the graph, uh, all you have to do is Google Chronicle for Higher Education Title IX chart. If you do that, you'll get there and you'll see the chart. So I did it yesterday to see where we are. And the chart says that 197 cases have been resolved since 2011, but 305 remain open. Now, when I've talked to schools that have had an investigation, this is not something that day one, they investigate you and day two, it's resolved. Okay. This can go on for six months or a year or more. So think about the reputation of a college or university that's being investigated by the OCR. Okay. So that's, that's one of the, the indirect costs of noncompliance. And you almost can't put a price tag on that because the damage could be years. Yes. And if you ever regain the trust of those who are turned away during that reputational risk, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it can just go on for years. Right. And Sarah, you know, being, having experience in the media, that 
College University X is being investigated, they're going to pick that up. And if the media covers it, it's what always shows up on the internet when anyone Googles the name of the school from yep. then on. Yes. It always becomes associated with whatever that scandal was. So yeah, I, I definitely see your point about the reputational risk of being non-compliant and then having a case that goes into you know government sure. investigation. Sure. Yeah. So let's jump to like the biggest challenges. To, I mean, this sounds kind of like a lot for schools to get a handle on. Tell me about where they could get tripped up. Okay. Well, one of the biggest, one. well, let me, let me start with the biggest challenge we, we kind of jumped over in, in when we talked about reputation. If you take a look at cases like Duke Lacrosse case, Penn State's with uh, Jerry Sandusky, University of Virginia's Rolling Stone case, uh, Michigan State uh, there, high-ranking officials lose their jobs, either are forced out or are plain fired. Okay, so that's one of the issues that you have to be concerned about. So number one, the live hearing thing, I think is the biggest challenge. What's that going to do? Will you continue to do it? The courts are saying you have to allow cross-examination. Some courts are allowing that. So that may have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court on that. But the whole issue surrounding live hearings, cross-examination, particularly of a uh, alleged victim of sexual violence, as an example. Okay, so that's that's number one. I think the the whole issue of men and women's sports, that biology, uh, and you know, I've talked a little bit about what what the definition or the meaning of sex is by the original people who passed Title IX, and I'm going to uh, kind of mark my my bias on this issue. And so, what I would ask your your audience to do uh, on this issue, and 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 my thought is. Most people are on one side of the fence or the other. They made up their mind on the issue, okay? But I would ask, the, you know, if you're a reasonable person, to take a look at this. Take a look at the competition between men and women where they compete in similar things. I, I'll take, like, track and field as an example. Look at the, uh, the Olympic times in uh, the sprints, in the, in the distance races, in the field events where, the, where they're the same. And then do that on the Olympic side – do it on the basis of, let's say, NC2A uh, side, high school side, maybe pick you know your, the high school that your children go to, what are their track and field records. And you can do it for anything. You can do it in swimming and other stuff. But compare the times and see what the difference is. And then there are those sports where you can't compare that, okay, but where height is important. So I'm, I'm thinking of a, a sport like basketball, a sport like volleyball, where, where height, height is different. So I, I went on the web and found the average height for men and, uh, adult men and women. And for men, it's 5 feet, 9.5 inches. And for women, it's 5 feet, 4 inches. So there's almost a 6-inch difference between that. Then I thought, well, what about professional sports? So I went to basketball. The average height for NBA players is six feet six and a half inches. The average height for WNBA players is six feet one half inch. Okay, so I know that they're talking about you know when you take chemicals on the male side, that's that's going to reduce this weight strength ratio. Some things I've heard it it does it by five percent. The research is not definitive, so I, I won't go there. Yeah, this is an evolving topic for sure. We're going to hear about this for right. for years. But you're not going to give a male a chemical thing and he's going to get shorter. 
Okay. That's not going to happen, Sarah. Wait, that's not a thing? No. Not, the shrinking it's, it's not, potion? No, not going to happen. And then I, th- I think along with that are, are the bathroom I- issues, okay? Is, is, and there have been court cases on that. And in, in some regions, uh, parents have lost when, the, when, they, when they have gone in and said, well, I don't want my daughter in the same locker room as, as a, a male, okay? In some cases, they've won, so the courts are split. So I think that's that's going to have to move so forward. So the but privacy factor, it's the rights of privacy exactly. within the bathrooms, locker rooms. Right, yes. And kind of offhand uh, story on that is uh, Concordia originally was an all-male institution. And so uh, uh, on the campus, on our former campus uh, in the west side of Milwaukee, there was only one bathroom for uh, women on the campus since it was all-male institution. Now we, now we later, you know, brought women on the campus. Uh, but then but then we bought the campus of the School Sisters of Notre Dame, as I, as I said earlier. Well, on that campus, there was only one bathroom for men. So that's, <laughs> I see that as kind of uh, God's humor. On, on that that. Is. That's like leveling the playing field yes, right there. Right. <laughs> we exactly. flipped your circumstances. Exactly. Oh, that's great. So Andy, as we're wrapping up here, tell me your best advice for the college leaders who might be listening how could they operate a fiscally viable institution? Could be related to a Title IX overhaul, but it could be related to other higher education trends and issues. Well, well, the one is apl- applicable across the board to t- from Title IX to wherever, and that is higher qualified staff. To me, that's essential. I am a advocate of the the Jim Collins philosophy that that he wrote, Good to Great, which is get the right people on the bus. And then when you get the right people on the bus, then get them in the right seats on the bus. And I'm, I'm a firm believer uh, in that. So t- to me, that's very important. Now, as it applies to Title IX, what do you need? You need non-prejudicial people, people that can walk into a case and say, I'm searching for the facts of the case. I'm not going to presuppose uh, one thing or another between the guilt or innocence of, of, of any party. I also believe you need empathetic people because uh, certainly – uh, uh, and let's let's take the case of an alleged sexual assault. Um, it's going to be traumatic for both parties. So certainly for the, for the alleged victim, but it also what I've seen is it's been traumatic for the other person because what's at stake. But it also affects their families and so and and roommates and close friends and a center. So having a uh, an empathetic staff is important there, and then good investigators, people who are willing to search for the facts. And then lastly, in your Title IX staff, hungry for the law. And that's what I mean by following case law, uh, the regulations, the guidance that the, that the OCR will continue to do forever. Uh, and then other schools, best practices. I think that's important. So people in the Title IX staff that are willing to do that, and that you can carry that to kind of almost any area of education. And I also think having men and women involved in the process is important. For me, Day one, I was concerned that if we were doing an investigation and if it was a male, a single person, a male, or a single person, a woman doing the investigation, that you may get criticisms that that person uh, was biased. Okay, So from day one, we always had a Title IX coordinator uh, uh, supervising the case who's a man and a woman, so two people, and the same thing in investigators. And we never, ever had anybody accuse us of gender bias. So I, to, to me, that's, that's important. And then thirdly, I, I believe it's important that the Title IX coordinator report to the president, directly to president. I mean, 
going back to the cases that, that I listened to, uh, to the Penn State case, um, the UVA case, et cetera, presidents and high-ranking administrators lose their jobs over what Title IX staff do. So I think it's important that they report directly to the president. And then the last one is certainly support your Title IX office with funds and facilities for them to do their job. Andy, you are a wealth of information. I so appreciate it. I feel like I got a wonderful refresher and even a crash course on new stuff. How can people contact you if they want to pick your brain a little bit more about this? Well, I have an email address, (laughs) and and it's still Concordia, so it would be Andy dot luptak l-u-p-t-a-k at c-u-w dot e-d-u great we'll uh, put that in our show notes andy thank you so much for being here today you're welcome it was a pleasure to support the cause of the affordable college experience visit us at highlevelleadership.com read our blog and join our email list to get connected follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app Let's get down to college business.